everyone. Welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. From Chinese electric buses in Barbados to Huawei 5G technology in Antigua to surveillance systems in Jamaica and ZTE undersea cables from Cuba, the discussion about U.S. and China tech competition is very much relevant to the Caribbean. And in this episode, I'll be speaking with Matt Sheehan about that topic exactly. We will also discuss his book called "The Trans-Pacific Experiment: How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future." Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Rashid. Thanks for having me on. Fan of the pod. I'd like to give some context to why this conversation is pretty important. The tech competition between the U.S. and China is severely impacting the Caribbean. In 2020, the Antiguan and Barbuda Prime Minister made a public comment that he cancelled a potential Huawei telecommunications. Construction deal in the country because he was worried about the backlash the U.S. would have over such a, a deal being done. He, but he added that he did this even though the Huawei deal was the best deal on the market. And that same year, the ambassador to the Jamaica, the U.S. ambassador to Jamaica. Made some fairly disparaging comments where he said that if Jamaica were to install 5G Chinese 5G systems in Jamaica, there's no guarantee the U.S. would give aid in the event of a hurricane or any kind of disaster. Now couple that with let's say Cuba. So Cuba, the Etexa, that's the state-owned internet company, the only one in the country. Their portal, there's a, a report by Uni, the Open Observatory. For network interference, there's some studies a few years ago that said that it seems like there's some Chinese comments in the source code in the Etexa portals, meaning that it's possible that Chinese developers designed the entire thing software, and the undersea cable that connects Cuba to the internet via Jamaica and Venezuela, called the Alpha One. Was also designed and implemented by Huawei and ZTE and LinkTP and so on. All these different Chinese firms. So the question of what's happening in the U.S. with China technology and how they're thinking about China technology is not simply a U.S. question. It's very much a Caribbean question. So I think that's why this conversation could be pretty valuable. Great, yeah, and I I love hearing about this stuff and learning about it from you. So. Questions will go both ways. So my first question is, what exactly was the Made in China 2025 strategy, and what about it caused the U.S. to be so aggressive towards it in a fairly short space of time? Yeah the the issue of Made in China 2025 has been it's been an interesting way to chart not just what are China's ambitions, but how does the U.S. relate to those. It came out in 2015, and really, it got 
very little coverage outside of China overall. So, you know, it probably at that time, this is 2015. So the U.S. still is not really that aware of China's overall tech capabilities. We still see it as a, you know, a copycat. We still see made in China as, you know, kind of cheap knockoffs and not a real competitor with sort of cutting edge industrial processes. Um, But over time, between 2015 and 2018, both that judgment about China's tech capabilities overall, and then how we specifically think about Made in China 2025 changed a lot. So I think uh, one landmark in this process was that uh, the Mercator Institute in Germany came out with a uh, report on Made in China 2025 that really kind of highlighted the ambitions and the way that this could end up crowding out foreign technology companies who want to say be involved in the market you know the the plan involved uh, targets for what percentage of different industries they wanted to be supplied by chinese domestic suppliers so the mercator institute came out with a pretty influential paper on this but one that you know didn't break into the totally mainstream you know front and center china conversation and that really changed in the beginning of 2018 when the U.S. launched its Section 301 investigation into China, which was kind of the the pretext or, or the the document that laid out the reasoning behind the trade war. So this is a U.S. government process that needs to be run before the U.S. imposes certain tariffs. And this was run by the United States Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer. And the document that came out of it was a very long sort of rundown of what they see as China's abusive trade practices and why the U.S. needs to take action in the form of a trade war. And what was most interesting about that is going into it, you know, I think a lot of people saw Donald Trump himself as very concerned about kind of old school trade issues. It's all about just the balance of trade, who who buys more, who buys less. Whereas that document, the Section 301C investigation, was actually much more sophisticated analysis of China's overall sort of uh, campaign to take in, indigenize, a multi-pronged effort to upgrade its technology and industrial base. And that document really put a lot of focus on Made in China 2025. I think it was mentioned, if I'm remembering this right, it was mentioned like 80 times inside of the Section 301 document. And a lot of the industries that were singled out for... um, for tariffs were those that were named in the industry. I think Robert Lighthizer said this publicly, that if he had his way, he would just impose tariffs on every one of the industries that China named in Made in China 2025. So, you know, this reflects a real change in how much the U.S. sees China as a threat in more advanced manufacturing, industrial technology, and, you know, cutting edge technology like semiconductors and whatnot. So I think, you know, in this period of time, very short period of time, 2015 to 2018, you see a real reversal in how the U.S. thinks about China's tech ecosystem, whether we think that these government plans are effective. You know, I think for a long time, we kind of, in the U.S. at least, people kind of mocked or derided China's, you know, quote unquote, planning for technology as, you know, just getting in the way of sort of free market, free internet, free minded innovation. That is sort of the true source of success. But as around 2018, we kind of changed that perception or a lot of people changed that perception in the U.S. I think a lot of that pivoted on the way that we thought about Made in China 2025. Who would you say amplified the 
counter to Made in China? Was it primarily in the policy aspects of the economy? Or was this a thing that the Silicon Valley um, entities also pushed for? I'd say that it came in both area, like the appreciation for China's capabilities or the understanding of China's capabilities came to both areas, came to Silicon Valley and DC, maybe Silicon Valley a little bit earlier, but oftentimes their reaction to that has been somewhat different. So a while back, I published a piece called How Silicon Valley Views China Across Five Dimensions. I think we usually try to say, you know, things in binaries. Oh, Silicon Valley thinks China is a copycat or it's an innovator. It's a, you know, an IP thief or it uh, creates its own technology. But really, the Silicon Valley-China relationship has a lot of different threads. You know, simultaneously, Silicon Valley sees China as, you know, in some ways, it's a copycat. In some ways, it's a competitor. In some ways, it's an IP thief. In some ways, it's a, you know, a resource for money and uh, talent. So it's kind of a complex relationship. And I think the basically between 2010 and 2016, 17 is when you saw Silicon Valley slowly, you know, the kind of the image of China as a copycat decreasing and around 20, I'd say 2015, 2016 was when we had this huge spike in appreciation for China as a, as an innovator, as someone putting out genuinely new, interesting uh, technology products and apps that the U.S. can learn something from. So, you know, the first one to really make a splash was WeChat. And around 2015, 2016, you had some high profile publications from people like uh, Connie Chan at A16Z that really laid out the way that WeChat built a super app and how different it is from, you know, U.S. messaging apps and how much more functional it is. And so you had this period of time, 2015 through, say, 2017, when Silicon Valley kind of got very excited about China seeing it as a competitor, but in a lot of ways, seeing it as an inspiration. So people at, you know, Facebook Messenger were studying WeChat and saying, how can we turn Facebook Messenger into a super app? How can we bring, you know, payments and commerce into it? So you had this period of time where Silicon Valley was kind of excited about engaging with China in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Google set up a new AI lab over there. Uh, the Google had tie-ups with Tencent. Facebook was trying to crack the market as always. And just a lot more interactions, a lot more Chinese venture capital in Silicon Valley and vice versa. And I'd say around around the time that the U.S. government kind of got, you know, awoke to China's capabilities, it just put a much more, you know, negative confrontational spin on things. And I think that that then sort of slowly seeped down to Silicon Valley. So, you know, 2015 to 2017, 18, Silicon Valley is kind of excited about China. And 2018, as the U.S. government starts to become aware of it, you know, the, the rhetoric gets much harsher. People are afraid of being associated with Chinese money. They're afraid of taking on investment from Chinese investors. They're afraid that their partnerships are going to kind of bring them in for uh, scrutiny. And I guess, you know, other things like the, you know, the mass internment detention and, uh, you know, huge human rights abuses of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Also, that slowly seeped into the consciousness of Silicon Valley and people started looking at China differently. So, you know, I think maybe five, more like maybe seven years ago, Silicon Valley kind of didn't pay a whole lot of attention to China. And when they did think about it, it was, oh, it's a copycat. You know, OK, there are talented engineers who come out of there, but mostly not really something we need to be concerned with. And, you know, in the present day, China is a global competitor. You know, TikTok is globally competing. Alibaba is globally competing. 
Um, but it's also seen as, you know, a, a threat. And I think Silicon Valley is slowly more aligning itself with DC in that, in that vision. So it would seem that the U.S. has placed a lot of emphasis on the 5G aspect of the tech competition, which you know, I think is a bit surprising to put so much effort into a 5G conversation. But do you think it was justified on the Chinese, on the American side, sorry, to put so much effort into countering China via 5G? Right. Yeah, I think there may be kind of two different elements to why we why the United States, why Washington, D.C. is concerned or should be concerned. And I think there's the security, the data security, cybersecurity aspect of it. And then there's also, you know, what will 5G do for economies more broadly? The last few years, we've been very focused on the security element of it. Um, I think maybe in the long run, more like a 10-year time scale, uh, it might end up being the economic impacts that have sort of the greatest effect on like, say, the global balance of power. So on the security front, you know, there are endless, endless debates about whether uh, Huawei equipment can be secured. You had, you know, the U.S. intelligence community disagreeing with the British intelligence community who saw it different from the Australian intelligence community over whether fundamentally allowing, you know, Huawei to sort of lay down the wires for this would inevitably give it a backdoor um, that it could exploit or or the potential to sort of uh, jeopardize access to networks at crucial points in time. You know, I'm not a cybersecurity expert who, and, and when the cybersecurity experts disagree about things, I tend to just kind of back off and <laughs> let them fight it out. I'd say at a very base level, you know, the, the U.S. opposition of it might come down to two things, which is one, an understanding of the way the U.S. long used its dominance of a global telecommunications network to do stuff like passive collection. So, you know, a lot of what came out in the Edward Snowden leaks, um, yeah, it confirmed for both, uh, it confirmed for other countries and it sort of reminded many in the U.S. that uh, at a base level, we can say that these networks are secure but there's always a chance that they will be jeopardized. And it seems like the person who created the networks has a lot more uh, leverage in that situation. So we have this kind of like base level, uh, you know, fear that is maybe more rooted in American actions of the past than Chinese actions. And then we also pair that with just a base level mistrust of Chinese entities um, in DC and the U S I think that it, in reality, it varies a lot how you know beholden a Chinese company is to the government. Huawei is certainly a lot closer to the government than a company like Alibaba, which is you know kind of currently on the outs with the government. Um, but at a base level, we just say you know no matter how many assurances you put in place, we just don't trust it. So that's kind of the security dimension of it. I think the economic dimension of it, what five G actually enables in economies, is something that you know got a bit sort of. Uh, washed out in all that discussion of whether these networks are secure. Right now, I'm currently researching a lot around what China is trying to do with the industrial internet, um, which is basically a vision for upgrading its manufacturing uh, ecosystem using emerging technologies like AI paired with 5G, paired with Internet of Things, et cetera, where you know, I think China's vision of this is that uh, these technology, as labor gets more expensive in China, as maybe uh, certain exports are, China's in a more precarious position in, say, global trade networks. 
this is what's going to give the sort of made in China uh, phenomenon. It's going to give China's industrial base another 10, 15, 20 years of runway. If it's just about labor or it's just about, say, like logistics networks, you can see that manufacturing offshoring relatively quickly. But if, for example, you know, 5G enables much more precise and real-time uses of robotics and computer vision in a factory. Can you have, say, fully automated, quote-unquote, dark factories? Um, can Is 5G going to end up being crucial to autonomous vehicles in some way? There's kind of debate about that. I think that that economic element, it's going to take a while for people to kind of build up the the real world applications right now, 5G is a sort of a technology that's waiting for the actual productive economic applications of it. But a lot of people, including the Chinese government, are sort of putting a large bet on the fact that this will uh, this will be crucial to, you know, uh, sort of pulsing the uh, pulsing the power of artificial intelligence and other technologies through the real world physical economy. And that's something that China is always very interested in. You know, they, they don't see tech as just some kind of like cool, neat gadget or like it's good that people can talk online or it's cool that there's all this open information. They're like, this is a tool. This is a tool for upgrading our economy. This is a tool for upgrading our political control. This is a tool for running a society as we want it run. And, you know, it's, it's still speculative, but 5G could play a large part of that. Hmm. So last summer in Barbados, this, uh, the U.S. Embassy, so this is the U.S. Embassy for Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean, which is seven countries plus Barbados that that one embassy represents. They had a seminar on 5G technology in, in the Caribbean, pretty much. And I tend to look at the seminars at the U.S. Embassy in the Caribbean as more of an appraisation indicator of the U.S. rather than what they think is a useful conversation in the Caribbean. So from a Caribbean perspective, 5G has very little benefit. They are small countries with small populations, so the bandwidth constraint of 4G is not actually a problem. And the infrastructure to build 5G requires quite a lot of foreign exchange, which could be applied to education to healthcare, many other things. So there's no real conversation on a policy level about 5G in the Caribbean. But yet the US Embassy thought it was fit to have that seminar. So I think it's a good way to think about what does the US want us to know other than what does the US think is important in the region. So I think it's a good litmus test there. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And moving to a different topic, uh Matt, you write a lot about AI policy now. You have the AI tracker, you have AI education database. Where do you see AI going in, on the policy level in the US? Yeah, I think in some ways it comes in waves. I think 2017, you know, the uh, in 2015, there were very few people in the US who thought about China's AI capabilities. It's partly the, the technology was a lot less mature, you know, globally, a lot less powerful, a lot fewer implementations of it. But also, we just weren't thinking about China in this way. 2017, China releases its national AI plan. And you saw a real strong, sudden sort of upswing in US concerns about AI. I think you're right that in sort of 2019, 2020, that basically got sort of displaced by the 5G conversation. But 
I do think that it's this is AI is a technology that is here to stay. I think the question is mostly whether we talk about AI kind of in the abstract as just artificial intelligence, or we end up talking about the sort of specific real world applications of it or the different subfields of it. So, you know, uh, computer vision, natural language processing, uh, robotics, all these other sort of subfields within AI. I think part of the maturation of the AI conversation is to start like really drilling down and saying, you know, not, not just saying where do the U.S. and China stand vis-a-vis each other in AI, where do they stand vis-a-vis each other in computer vision or in something even far more specific than that. So, you know, maybe uh, 3D modeling based on sound acoustics or something like that. These are the more specific areas and subfields. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, I'd say a, an example of the maturity of the technology. Like you wouldn't say, you know, who's ahead in China, who's ahead in the internet, China or the US. You know, we might say who's ahead in mobile payments, uh, you know, who has a more mature ecosystem for, you know, uh, e-commerce or something like that. We wouldn't just say the internet. Um, This is not really a meaningful metric over time. So I think that that's definitely a transition that's happening. And it's kind of, uh, it's something that I'm you know, trying to be a part of as a part of the research community of saying, okay, let's, let's really drill down and get very specific about what we're talking about. Are we talking about semiconductor competition? Are we talking about, um, you know, different kinds of data access overseas? But yeah, I think, I, I think AI is very much here to stay as a technology and as a sort of sticking point, but hopefully the U S government can just sort of drill down and start having very strategic, sort of micro level interventions as opposed to just the big picture, you know, oh, China's catching up in AI, we need to block Chinese students or China's, you know, catching up, we just need to block all semiconductor exports or something like that. I think there's there's room for a lot more nuance. And uh, I think that's where things are headed. I forgot to mention this before, but last year, summer, I think there was a report published by an independent researcher in the UK. I think it was an independent researcher where he, his research suggested that perhaps China, via some telecommunication providers, would have hacked into the telecommunications network in the Caribbean, particularly in Barbados and I think the Bahamas. Now, of course, this, this, this made quite a splash in the UK, but in the Caribbean, it was not at all noticed. I think there's one news article here or there in various Caribbean islands, but no one really picked it up. And then you see the social media reaction in the country last for a couple of hours. No one really cared that much. And it's not because that people think it's a lie. It's more the case where if you ask someone, they would say, yeah, okay, well, isn't that what the US does? Isn't that what the UK does? You know, so on and so on. Why should I not have faster, cheaper, better technology because of China's potential spying? That's just what everyone else does as well. So the trade-off is ways towards the more efficient technology and not ways towards the potential of less uh, less risk. I think this part, this thing is not discussed enough when you read these think tank pieces from the US where... People say, oh, well, you have to be careful with the risk of Huawei because of the hacking potential and the spying potential. In the Caribbean, it's not that people think that it's false. It's just a case that that is not enough to trade off the potential of better tech. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the whole question of 
whether or not networks can be spied on, how you come at that question <laughs> depends a lot on you know who you are in the equation. The U.S. was long the dominant supplier in that equation and the dominant you know uh, intelligence gatherer, uh, passive collection, active collection, all kinds of ways. And yeah, I, I think in the U.S. maybe we haven't kind of internalized long term the impact globally of the Snowden revelations in just making people feel that, uh, yeah, in, in changing how people think about the U.S.'s role in these networks. You know, I think a lot of European countries are still like, well, if I have to be spied on by somebody, I'd rather be spied on by the U.S. But that might look a lot different, uh, you know, depending on where you are and what your history is with all the countries involved. I'm, I'm curious. I want to ask you, uh, you know, you say there's this kind of... Uh, yeah, just not not all that much concern about uh, Chinese presence and these kind of cybersecurity concerns. Do do Chinese sort of consumer products, either consumer apps or consumer like mobile phones, stuff like that? What's the traction like that in in a place like Barbados? Do people are they present? Do people think about it? Uh, do people even kind of recognize these as Chinese versus American versus European brands? Uh, well, everyone knows TikTok. So and that's, that's that's pretty popular. Besides that, you have also AliExpress, which I think might be a bit surprising. And you have people who probably cannot name what the capital of China is, but they know about AliExpress. So I have a friend. He he mentioned this funny story. He was going to buy a shirt on Amazon, and his sister, who, again, who knows nothing about China told him, why would you buy on Amazon and buy it on AliExpress? It's way cheaper. So you kind of see that being being, being um, um, play out in, in, in Barbados. And there was a this funny incident, I think maybe two years ago, this lady bought a bunch of things from AliExpress and she imported them to Barbados. Um, so Barbados has import tariffs on pretty much everything except some key education supplies. So when the the products got to the post office. I think she ended up paying, I say, nine times more in taxes on airport taxes than the cost of the goods that she bought from Ali uh, AliExpress, and that causes this conversation in in Barbados. Why do we have these taxes on goods that are so cheap when we um, can just buy them and get better deals? which you weren't having as much vigorous conversation when it was from Amazon because the price points were a lot higher, so the taxes seemed a bit more justified. But now people are saying, well, just let's, let's think about this a bit more. That's, that's pretty funny. What about, what about in mobile phones? What about in smartphones? What kind of brands are popular? Yeah, and the Chinese phones are, I guess, fairly popular in the Caribbean. We have Huawei, ZTE, Oppo. I don't see any transient, which is a bit surprising, but I, I can get to that afterwards. So what you find in the Caribbean is the carriers would import unbranded Huawei phones and then slap their own logo on it. And this is done because it's way cheaper than buying the Samsung phones. And of course, because carriers make most of their money from contracts, they're not for the actual phone sale, they prefer to have these cheaper phones in the Caribbean. So maybe I would guesstimate about 30%, probably 30% of the Barbadian phone users are using Huawei phones in some way or the other. 
So yes, pretty pretty high. I would probably think the same is true for some other Caribbean countries like Trinidad, Jamaica, perhaps. You also have the branded Huawei phones, the more higher end, the Honor brand. You see the ZTE, you see the Oppo phones as well. And you also see a lot of dumb phones from ZTE. So the older population use the dumb phones that are usually ZTE phones. I mean, they're, they're so cheap that sometimes the carrier would say, hey, just get get this contract and we'll give, give you a free phone, mostly a ZTE phone. So people quite like that. And they tend to compete with the Samsung phones, it's the other major phone brand in, in the Caribbean. But it's not always the higher-end Samsung phones, so the, the S20, for example. It's mostly the A-series or J-series. And then they have iPhones, but iPhones, because of the very high price point, it's by no means a large market share in the Caribbean. I'm, I, I, so I'm surprised that Transient is, lo- is, is not as popular as it sh- should, could be. Uh, for those for, you, for those of you who don't know, Transient is a Chinese phone um, company who is the biggest uh, smartphone producer by market share in Africa, across Africa, I believe. So they have these cameras, for example, that are better attuned to dark skin. So for that reason, you would think that's probably going to be a lot more popular in the Caribbean, which I think it will be over that three years, but until then... Huawei is probably the, 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 the runaway winner. Right. So, Matt, in your book, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, you have this really fun chapter on BYD, the Chinese company who, among other things, manufactures electric buses. So, Barbados recently purchased, I think, over 30 electric buses from BYD. The government has this plan to have a fully renewable uh, economy by, I think, perhaps 30 years or so. But the buses are already in Barbados. They're already serving the public. And the government plans to buy a whole lot more buses, I think, also from BYD. And because of the proximity of Barbados to California, relative to China, I assume, but I don't know, that the BYD buses perhaps came from the Lancaster BYD manufacturing plant in California. And that is the entire topic of your chapter on, in, in your book. So you're probably the perfect person to discuss BYD and Lancaster and the US. <laughs> yeah, I spent, uh, I spent a lot of time going out to Lancaster and, and looking into that story of BYD down there. So uh, where to start? I guess my, my interest in BYD's presence here in North America. So BYD, just for people who don't know, it's a Chinese uh started as just a battery company, eventually became an electric battery and an electric vehicle company. And they sort of pivoted from trying to sell a lot of consumer electric vehicles to more buses. And I got interested in them around 2013 when they had sort of landed in the U.S. to much sort of fanfare. It's pledging that they're going to build a factory and they're going to build an office here um, during the financial crisis. And so you kind of had this, it was a very sort of symbolic move. You know, during the financial crisis, the U.S. is uh, kind of uh, in tatters economically, financially, and there's this look for, you know, uh, investment from abroad. And so you had in California this big push to attract BYD to set up a base here. So you had 
uh, at the time, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, you had the mayor of L.A., all going to these ribbon cutting ceremonies uh, to bring BYD to the U.S. And for BYD and for Chinese companies, it was kind of this like, you know, this is our moment to shine. This is our moment to go out on the global stage and, and start to make an impact. And it's a very long and winding story what happened to BYD in, in the L.A. area with Lancaster being a city just outside L.A. But sort of what it came down to is that um, they ended up building a factory in Lancaster because they wanted to be able to sell buses in the U.S. And with a lot of the, the stimulus money after the financial crisis, it was, there was a Buy America provision in the stimulus, which meant, you know, you had to buy products. You had to use stimulus money to buy products that were built, uh, manufactured largely in America. So BYD says, OK, we'll just build these buses in, uh, in Lancaster, um, which is very kind of down and out desert town outside of L.A. And uh I got engaged with it because there was a scandal at the factory where they were being investigated from, by the state of California for allegedly, you know, paying below minimum wage and bringing in cheap Chinese laborers instead of employing Americans, kind of like a whole uh, web of accusations. And they had been recruited there by this very, just very strange mayor um, named Rex Paris who really saw he's a, he's just a, a very weird guy. Um, <laughs> very strange, got all kinds of weird views. He basically want, he, he thinks of Lancaster, his city as kind of a giant social experiment for him to fight climate change and fight gangs and bring in manufacturing and all this stuff. And so in, in the book, I wrote a chapter sort of following the, the trials and travails of BYD where it, Sort of, you know, there's this great hope that they're going to supply all these American jobs. There's this big downfall as they were sort of accused of, of not doing that. Eventually, BYD was acquitted. They were sort of found to have not actually violated uh, any meaningful rules. And today, I mean, the factories are, are sort of big and pumping out buses. I believe, think last time I checked, they employed more than 800 people in the bus factories. And this is, a, this is the kind of place, you know, it's not in the Rust Belt of America, but it has a Rust Belt feel in that it used to be near an Air Force base. And after the 90s, you know, a lot of that uh, money sort of left the area. So it, it really has been kind of an engine for revitalizing the economy there and building up a, a new manufacturing base. But yeah, they, they build a lot of buses there. They export them at least around the US, I think also to Canada. And I believe the BYD buses in South America also come from Lancaster. So it would make sense if uh, the buses in the Caribbean were coming from there as well. Yeah. Yes, Matt. You wrote an article recently about the nature of the industrial internet in China. Do you think there's a parallel system in the U.S. where national policy drills down into various robust local policies? Because it seems like the idea of industrial policy is now kind of gaining traction, the concept to follow in the U.S. Yeah. So this question has been interesting to me for a long time. I, I lived in China 2010 to 2016. And during that period, you had a couple of, you know, big waves of sort of hype around different kinds of technologies. So there was kind of a, a high speed rail, you know, boom and hype cycle that in many ways was very real. The high speed rail build out was really transformative for a lot of China. And the next one that came out about was around 20, basically 14, 15, 16 was the uh, basically the mobile Internet hype boom cycle. And uh, following after that was the AI hype boom cycles in around 2017, 2018. 
And in each of these cycles, you have, uh, you know, the activity is very much in the private sector, maybe except for high-speed rail, which works with a lot of state-owned companies. The activity is in the private sector, but it often tracks in parallel to Chinese government plans, Chinese government documents. Um, so in the case of sort of mobile internet, there was what was called shuang chuang, which means kind of like double innovation. I think the which means like, you know, uh, mass innovation, mass entrepreneurship. So this was a, an initiative by Li Keqiang, which basically said, like, we need to, you know, support startups around the country. We need to support the mobile Internet. We need to support all these ventures. And that led to a huge sort of flurry of activity, tons of venture capital money going in, um, a lot of successful startups, a lot of total bust, uh, you know, hype startups. And you saw the same thing happen in AI. You saw, you know, sort of versions of this happen, like with shared bikes. You know, you had a huge shared bike boom in Beijing. And what's interesting to me is how, what's the relationship between these things? How does a private sector technology that's starting to gain traction get on the radar of, and then sort of promoted by the national government? And then how does that national plan like trickle down to actual implementation on the ground? I think in the U.S. we, at, at a very crude level, we think of China still being kind of command and control. And we tend to think of you know, the government issues an order and and thus it will be. You know, the government says China is going to be the leader in AI by 2030 and thus they will be the leader in AI by 2030. We've kind of gotten locked in that cycle, but I think there's a lot that happens in between a central government headline and, you know, the implementation below. So I was charting with this with the industrial internet. I also did it with the AI plan where I see it as being a, a more nuanced process like that, where basically the central government, you know, sort of sets the direction, sets the priorities and issues kind of like a, a call, you know, a signal out to uh, leaders at the local level that this is now a priority. Say AI is now a priority for China. And the key sort of mechanism for making that actually happen is what that means to local officials is I will be promoted. I will receive good marks in my internal party evaluations if I can, in some way, somehow promote AI development locally. So the central government isn't going there saying, hey, you know, you in uh, Jiangsu, I want you to open an electric vehicle uh, testing facility. And you in Guangdong, you're going to be the chip researcher and you need to create this exact chip. It's a very, AI is a very diffuse technology that you can't really plan from the top down like that. So the central government just says, hey, you know, with the issuance of a plan, they say, hey, this is a huge priority. And, the, you know, you, you local bureaucrat, whether you're a transportation official or a university president or a mayor or a governor, whatever you are in the party apparatus, if you can show that you're pushing forward AI development within your jurisdiction, you will be rewarded. So then you have all kinds of, you kind of let the local officials get creative in doing whatever they can to promote it. So with AI, you know, say you're a, a transportation official and you now know that AI is a big priority, you know, you might uh, set up, you know, sort of wall off a little part outside of town where you can have like an autonomous vehicle testing facility. And they've done this in Suzhou. They'll kind of create special zones just for testing AVs. If you're the, uh, you know, the head of a university who's also almost always a Communist Party official, now you know AI is a priority. Okay, you might put a lot of funding behind a new 
um, you know, computer vision research institute at your university. If you're the mayor, you know, you might uh, say subsidies to AI businesses that move to your area. If you're the police, you might just buy a lot of surveillance cameras with AI technology. So, you know, you have this you have this tricky dynamic where the central government is setting priorities, setting directions. But when we think of the AI plan, quote unquote, it's not it's not like a blueprint. You know, you can't just draw up a blueprint for building AI nationwide. You more have to rely on a lot of the local government officials. And and the reason why that works in China is because fundamentally your your political career, your prospects are dependent on evaluations from within the party system. You know, there's like a what's called the organization department, uh, which is basically like the big HR wing of the of the CCP. And so, you know, you're you're rewarded or you're you're uh, you're punished for promoting or not promoting the goals and your performance on promoting those goals. And I think the reason why this is so hard in the U.S. is all of the incentives are different. The incentives in the U.S. If Obama or what am I talking about Obama, if Joe Biden, <laughs> you know, says, hey, uh, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, huge priority, like I, I, you know, we we as America need to lead in autonomous vehicles. You know, if you're a Republican mayor of, uh, you know, a, a city in Texas or something like that, it's it's in your interest to be actually totally opposed to Joe Biden on this front. You don't want to be seen as cooperating or promoting initiatives by the other party. And even if you're a Democratic mayor, you know, in the end, it's not Joe Biden who is going to either promote you to, you know, governor or not, it's going to be the voters. And so, you know, politicians then are often much more risk averse. They they know or they think probably correctly that, you know, they will be much more punished for making a mistake in sort of promoting some new big project then they would be rewarded for success. You know, if a if a mayor of San Francisco decides that he really wants to promote autonomous vehicles and he, you know, sets up some city level laws about testing within the city limits, there's way more downside on that for him. If anyone is, dies in a crash or if we just spend money that, you know, ends up being wasted, you're going to be crushed by the opposing party and you're probably going to pay for it in the next election. Whereas in China, there's there's still risk and politicians are still risk averse. When the central government says, hey, AI, massive priority, it kind of de-risks initiatives in that department to a certain extent. It says, you know, try. You'll be rewarded for success. You know, you, you might be punished for failure, but at least you can point to the fact that you were pushing a major initiative. So... Yeah, you know, that's kind of my sketch of how I think these plans tend to work in China and why we're not really able to initiate them in the same way here in the U.S. I think we can learn a lot of things from it. I think a lot of countries can learn a lot of things from the way that China goes about these things, you know, particularly if somehow, some way the two parties can kind of agree on a, a joint priority that they're not going to punish each other for supporting then that would kind of de-risk some of these ventures here in the U.S. at least. Um, but it, it's tough. It's, it's really a system-level problem where the, the Chinese system is, is better equipped for these kind of directed, focused efforts at developing something. Yeah. Incentives matter. <laughs> <laughs> Incentives always matter. Yeah. There is an interesting program going on in Jamaica called the Jamaica Eye which 
perhaps may sound a bit ominous on the surface. It does. It is this nationwide CCTV network technology and surveillance camera a surveillance tech system that allows the government to help monitor crime and solve crime in a more rapid way. And there was a news story from Jamaica recently where the, the you know the news agency was lauding the Chinese business community for having the good CCTV systems and helping reduce crime in those business areas. I don't see this discussed much about in US or North America or European news in general. But it's an interesting example where you can perhaps see more expansion of Chinese technology via internet surveillance in, in the Caribbean and also in the Americas. There's also an example where I think this is also um, Chinese surveillance systems are actually being deployed in Ecuador. So I do see it coming to the Caribbean a lot more. And the thing is, this is perhaps a good thing because Jamaica has the third highest homicide rate in the world, which for gives a small Caribbean country that is very, very high. And other Caribbean countries also have very high homicide rates as well. So you can see this expansion of Chinese surveillance technology could be pretty rapid, but again, also very beneficial. I haven't seen any documentation suggesting that the CCTV systems in Jamaica already are supplied or trained from Chinese systems, but I expect that to happen pretty soon, given Jamaica does have fairly good ties with China. For example, China Harbour is based in Kingston in, in Jamaica. Do you have any thoughts on that general point? That's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I hadn't followed the Jamaica I program. It, do, it does sound ominous. I'd be curious to hear your take on whether there is a meaningful or an impactful sort of cultural difference in terms of the willingness to accept that kind of a intervention. So, you know, you, you describe this kind of trade-off where people would rather have, uh, you know, CCTV cameras and safe streets uh, in a place that's particularly violent. You know, I think a lot of times between the U.S. and China, we kind of maybe overblow these cultural differences. We pretend that Chinese people are just all, you know, welcoming and willing to accept it. Whereas in the U.S., we're all, you know, like live free, die hard and just will never take it. Maybe that's overblown. Um, but there, there is something meaningfully different that Chinese people do on balance tend to think of it as like this is a function of the government to keep us safe. And this is uh, this is a worthwhile trade off. Do you think that whether it's Jamaica or if there's any way to generalize across countries in the Caribbean, whether there's any, yeah, a cultural push in one way or the other in terms of the relationship between people and the government that might lean more towards or away from surveillance tech? Hmm. It's a good question. I, I don't, I think it perhaps would be a philosophical difference, which obviously could leak into culture. So in the Caribbean, what counts as public and what counts as private is very contrasting. So in public, that's the space for social cohesion, social commingling, and those kind of behaviors. For example, if you walk along the street in the Caribbean and you don't tell someone good morning, or if they don't tell, if they don't greet you back, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, that behavior is looked down upon as a low morals, or you know, you're a bad person if you don't greet someone in public. Where that is unheard of in, for example, New York. If you, you, you walk around Times Square and tell someone good morning, they probably think you're crazy. So I think that comes back to this, 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 this topic. So violence 
destroys social cohesion in the, in the public, where surveillance and CCTV can be used to enhance social cohesion. So I think that could be a fairly big difference in how the conservative Caribbean doesn't think that your freedom is necessarily embodied in your body in every step you take. Where in America, you you know you walk with your freedom in some cases everywhere. I think the space of freedom in private and the space of freedom in public are different philosophical considerations in very conservative Caribbean. That's very interesting. Yeah, and it's, you know, every, everyone is, it's not like a 2D spectrum. It's like a 3D, 4D map and that, you know, Europe Europe has a sort of very different like value set around this on privacy and whatnot. And, you know, on even like what, can you take pictures of people in public or your image on the internet, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's definitely a, you know, that doesn't fit in perfectly to a prescription on, uh, on surveillance in Caribbean countries or something like that, but you can see how it might set the table for a different approach to it. And I think in the U S we, we still do have a hard time even. Yeah. We, we have an, our hard time understanding that, there are many societies where, yeah, violence is just way, way more of a concern than uh, than whether or not your, you know, your face is captured in a public setting or something like that. And, you know, I, 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 yeah. And, you know, I think a contrasting issue here is that in America, there are more things that are considered to be political questions as compared to Caribbean. So, for example, you don't need to have a moral exegesis about your political philosophy to figure out, well, how do you have gangs stop killing other people in the street in Jamaica, for example? That's not a necessary conversation. Where in the U.S., when you think about new ideas of security and safety, it always comes back to what does this mean about us and the USA and our freedom and our constitution? And You know, I, I get it. I get it. But there are trade-offs. And in Caribbean, it also trade-offs. So I think when it comes to security and safety, for you know, same thing, the question of what counts as political is not as important in the Caribbean. You know, again, that may be good or maybe bad, but I think that's a fairly uh, material difference between what in the U.S. These things are always reflected as political questions. Uh, that's that's yeah, that's a fascinating way of phrasing it. And, and Matt, for my last question, I want to touch on the political engagement of Asian Americans. In uh, in your book, you had a chapter which kind of broadly um, talked about this. So I have a friend who is Asian American, and he would send pictures to me of the Epoch Times come to his house, and his parents might read it, but they didn't pay for it or they didn't ask for it, but, you know, it turns up. Or elsewhere, I might be walking around in New York and I might see a Shenyun sign and I'll, you know, have a good chuckle. But people don't actually know what it is unless they are into China policy or they are themselves Chinese American. Now, that being said, there was the, the apparent case that Asian Americans compared to any other minority group in America were more supportive of Donald Trump than would be expected, given his fairly explicit or very explicit anti-Asian sentiment or anti-China sentiment. You've you, you got to be careful, I guess, how you interpret that. 
what do you think accounted for the Asian American support of Donald Trump in a fairly, you know, material way? Yeah, it's a complex question for for people who might not know off the top of their heads the, the two things Roshi was referring to Falun Gong and or uh, uh, Epoch Times and Shen Yun. They're both associated with the Falun Gong spiritual movement in China. You know, persecuted spiritual movement that kind of took up residence in the U.S. Um, so it's a tough thing to talk about the Asian American, but specifically Chinese American support for Trump. I think. Even in 2016, when you looked at the actual uh, the exit polling, Asian Americans on the whole uh, voted Democratic. They voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But that kind of, you know, masks differences between different uh, people with roots in different countries, Chinese Americans versus Korean Americans, Japanese Americans. It masks differences between uh, sort of generations of immigrants, you know, did your family come here in the 1950s or did your family come here in 2005? And it masks differences in, uh, say, class and education within those groups as well. So the place where you did have a lot of very public vocal support for Donald Trump, and this is what I sort of chronicled in in the chapter of my book, was in relatively recent immigrants from mainland China who were often pretty wealthy when they came to the U.S. So, you know, we, we kind of just say Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants, but that, you know, is very, very different groups. So you came here back in the 70s, you were probably a working class person coming from Hong Kong and living maybe in, in Chinatown in the middle of the city. But by 2000, that had changed completely. You know, many, many, many of the Chinese immigrants who came, say, 2000, the year 2000 to 2012 or 15 or so, they were often uh, wealthy, highly educated, um, often involved in either technology or some type of investment profession. And they were coming from mainland China and especially maybe from the north of China, but from all over to a certain extent. So... These groups enter the United States at totally different entry points. You either enter as a sort of working class immigrant in an immigrant enclave who might be working in, you know, like a sweatshop, a manufacturing sweatshop that existed in New York and San Francisco and other places for a long time. And, you know, then you, you might plug into the American sort of narrative and story in a different way. You know, you're, you, you might have come of age during the civil rights movement. Uh, you might have more of a you know, Asian American consciousness as opposed to Chinese American. And, uh, you know, you left China at a time when it was extremely repressive and extremely poor, uh, you know, Maoist totalitarian state in some ways. So those people might enter China, enter the United States in a different way, and they tend to vote very democratic, uh, be you know, kind of more invested in what we think of as like the liberal progressive vision of America as, you know, a melting pot um, where you need to take care of the poor and whatnot. If you, you know, as some people that, for example, in the chapter, one of the guys that I profiled, who's a, a Chinese American Trump supporter, he arrived here in 2004. He works for a semiconductor company in Silicon Valley. When he got here, I think he had a master's from Tsinghua, maybe even a PhD. So you enter the United States already as kind of an upper middle class person and you uh, enter it in the suburbs. You don't live in the city and there and you left a China that was kind of uh, 
uh, a strong assertive power as opposed to a relatively weak backward country. And yeah, you, you just enter the American experiment in a much different way. You know, why they specifically sort of coalesced around Donald Trump is kind of a few different things. Um, you know, it's not, they might be conservative in leaning overall, like low taxes, uh, you know, very concerned about crime and whatnot. But the specific support for Donald Trump often had a lot to do with affirmative action um, and the fact that this became a hot button issue in California, where we tried to, uh, they tried to reinstate affirmative action in California public schools. And that would probably have a very big impact on Asian American or Chinese American students who uh, make up huge portions, like 40% of places like thir- maybe 35% of places like UC Berkeley. So for parents, this, you know, they, they don't see themselves as part of this grand American multicultural experiment that came about in the 60s, 70s, et cetera. They're like, hey, I worked hard. I got an education in China. I came here so my kids can get a good education. And now you're telling me that they're going to have a harder time getting into Berkeley because we're going to reinstate affirmative action and that will lead to a decrease in Asian Americans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that became a real flashpoint for this community. And eventually it sort of trickled up to Donald Trump in a lot of ways because it became very focused on Supreme Court justices. Who's he going to appoint? Is he going to appoint someone who will overturn affirmative action and rule it unconstitutional nationally? That's an element of it. I think, you know, people here in the U.S., if we're honest, there's a lot of anti-Black racism in the Chinese American community in the U.S. And that becomes a big flashpoint for it. So, you know, Trump's election coming right on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement, that divided a lot of households, uh, Chinese American households that I know where the parents, you know, maybe came here with a PhD in electrical engineering in the middle of their lives. They tend to still hold very uh, racist views of like race relations in America. And they say, you know, if, if I sort of pick myself up, why don't black people do the same? And that's very ingrained in there, whereas their kids, you know, people maybe my age or younger who grew up in the United States, you know, kind of got the full multicultural package experience of the U.S. You know, those those Chinese American kids are often participating in Black Lives Matter protests. And so you had you had a lot of sort of fault lines here. There were other accelerants. WeChat, you know, if you if you're a Chinese American person who uses WeChat, you're kind of in a different information universe where you get a lot more Chinese language content, which tends to be more to fuel a lot of these ideas, um, as opposed to if you're an older immigrant who reads English language or does Cantonese stuff, you're in a different sphere. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, sort of political demographic story. I tried to chart it in that book as as best I could. Um, very nuanced, very nuanced. And, uh, you know, I'm always wary of trying to, of, of speaking for the, you know, the, the political sentiments or the emotions of a large group that I'm not a part of. But I do think there's a lot of layers there to kind of slowly be peeled back. Yeah. And a lot of nuances often lost when you have these broad racial categorizations of people by politics in, in, in from in politics in the US. And I, I kind of see a similar thing in West Indians, in heritage people in America, where a lot of people from West Indian heritage tend to think very differently than African Americans more broadly, and they tend to have a very different view of the world as well. So even on 
you know, pretty well studied um, social sciences about how West Indians has outperformed his income and education attainment compared to African Americans as well. So, so you obviously would expect a big difference in how they see America and see themselves in America as well. So, yeah, I think this is a good way to have a conversation where you have to realize that's because you have skin color that it's the same. It's almost obvious, but that doesn't mean you think about politics the same way. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I've heard a little bit about what you're describing with the West Indian uh, immigrant population in the U.S. But yeah, it shows, you know, we, we want to we kind of code everything just by skin color. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, when, when did you enter the U.S.? In what stage of life, education, what class? And then who do you want to differentiate yourself? Who do you want to say that you're like and who do you want to say that you're not like? Not every day we're gonna be the same way. Hi everyone. One last thing before you go. I just started a newsletter on Substack, and you can subscribe at chinacaribbean.substack.com. Also, to contact me about anything China Caribbean related, you can follow me or message me on Twitter at Rashid Guo. I will leave links to all these things in the show notes. Got to face in life Today you're up Tomorrow you're down